Hello and welcome to our first podcast of Gospel Doctrine. I'm your host, Mark Holt, broadcasting from the high hills of Sandy, Utah. And I didn't plan on doing this because I intend these podcasts to work as a reference for the scriptures we discuss, but I just found out this morning that uh, our beloved prophet and leader of the LDS Church, Thomas S. Monson, has died in the night. And so... Of course, it's entirely appropriate to be thinking about what his life meant and what he meant personally to me. Uh, I know each of you will have your own thoughts and feelings on the subject, but obviously the one thing that stands out in President Monson's life is a life of service, and I don't think anybody can remember President Monson without remembering all of the times he talked about the widows that he visited as a bishop. Uh, and I. I don't know if that was his first calling as bishop, but he was bishop for years of a ward where there were so many widows and the Lord entrusted that calling to him and that duty to him because he knew President Monson would be diligent in seeking out those people and showing his love for them. And when I think of that, I think of the verse in the first chapter of James where it talks about pure religion and unspotted before God is this to visit the widow and orphan in their affliction. And... So, President Monson, we love you, and you were an example of pure religion and unspotted before God. And also, it's entirely appropriate to think about who will replace President Monson, which is, by church tradition, going to be President Russell M. Nelson of the Quorum of the Twelve. And when I think about President Nelson, I think about somebody who is a heart surgeon and just a very learned man and a world-respected heart surgeon, uh, among many other accomplishments in his professional and personal life. And his his approach has been slightly different as every prophet's is. And so when I think about uh, President Nelson, I think about somebody who has has taught amazing doctrines of the Savior and has also been extremely humbled by the roles which he has been called to fulfill. Um, I'm remembering particularly the talk in which he spoke about his general conference talk, in which he spoke about a family um, on whose daughters he operated on two of his whose daughters, and they both died, and how that affected him personally, and how the family was then uh, moved to leave the church and move into inactivity for a time, and how uh, their spirits appeared to him and begged him to go to his family and get them back into the church. What a what a touching story that was. Um, and President Nelson is a man who has overcome so many amazing and daunting obstacles. And uh, in fact, he's the author of a book. Uh, I believe it's called Accomplishing the Impossible. Um, so he's a very accomplished man and a very learned man and a very wonderful man. I, I have had the privilege of meeting him personally, briefly, uh, which I can't, can't say about President Monson, but he struck me as somebody who's extremely humble and extremely concerned about those around him and aware of them. So I am grateful that he is the man who will now lead us. And I, uh, and I take this opportunity to say to those listening that now you have an opportunity, which is to examine the life and teachings of the man who will be your prophet and pray about how you feel about him. Pray about how you will receive his 
life and his teachings. President Nelson is now older than President Monson was when he died by a few years. He's into his 90s, and he may not be with us all that long, although I hope it will be a, a long time. Uh, we know he's an old man, and therefore you have a brief time in which to appreciate this man and his teachings and in which to receive what he might offer you. And it will be better for you personally. The Lord will bless you if you will take the time at the beginning of his ministry and receive a personal witness of his prophetic calling. That is an opportunity and a blessing and a promise that is extended to everyone who will take the Lord up on that. So with that beginning, um, let's let's talk about our podcast. I'm excited to do this. Uh, my background is that I uh, taught gospel doctrine for years, and lately I've been feeling the hunger to teach more, to teach again. And that doesn't happen to be my calling right now. I'm currently joyfully and gainfully employed in my ward as the choir director, but I've held various callings since the last time I taught gospel doctrine. Nevertheless, that I believe that calling was the time during which I was the happiest in a calling. Uh, the last time I was a gospel doctrine teacher. And every time there's an opening in a ward that I'm in, I feel a yearning, I feel a, a desire, um, perhaps an unrighteous desire, but I wish that that calling could go to me because I love preparing the lessons and I love teaching the lessons. And I often go to my the gospel doctrine teachers in my ward and, and volunteer to be a substitute. And they, from time to time, take me up on that uh, because I just enjoy the process of it and, and especially the preparation of it so much. So from that desire, this podcast was born. And I feel like I will personally benefit and I hope that those listening will what I have in mind with this podcast is that you will listen to it on Sunday. Uh, I'm personally a, a talk radio listener, and I, I love listening during the week. But on Sunday, I felt like getting into anything political or other the other subjects of the talk radio podcast I listened to uh, wasn't as appropriate for Sunday. And that's another thing that I got from President Nelson. I feel like it's mostly been his teaching that we should put so much emphasis on keeping the Sabbath day holy. And that Trying that out, following that counsel has really blessed my life. And so I thought if I feel this way, maybe there's a demand for this, that people would listen to a podcast that is designed to be listened to on Sunday and to uplift your life and to prepare you, especially if you're a gospel doctrine teacher, to prepare you to teach the lesson the following week. And I don't suggest that you take what I say and just repeat it, but it will be one more resource that you have access to in your preparation. And I'll talk a little bit more in coming episodes about the the methods that I use to prepare. But now I'd like to talk a little bit about the Old Testament itself. It's my favorite of all the standard works. And I know that's a strange take on it. Uh, a lot of people look at me funny when I say that, and they shake their heads a little bit and say, well, I admire that, but obviously I don't share it. And the reason I share it with you is so that you'll know it's possible to really love this book of scripture. Uh, early on my mission, I was waiting for a visa before I was able to join my mission, my formal mission in Portugal. I was waiting for a visa in Colorado. And there I came across a copy of the biography of President Spencer W. Kimball. And the story that President Kimball tells is of being a young man in a state conference and the speaker invites anyone who has read the entire Bible to stand up. 
And even as a young man of, I believe, 12 years old, he was struck by how few people in his entire stake were able to stand up. And he made the goal and started it that night that he would read the entire gospel. And it took him a year, but he did it. And among many other things in that biography, that struck me. And so I started to do the same thing. Uh, There was a particular area where we had some old church teaching materials, and there was a, a Portuguese institute manual of the Old Testament. And I thought this will help me in my language study. I'm going to adopt this as my language study every day rather than using the mission materials, which I've gone over a hundred times. So I started reading the Old Testament institute manual as my language study. And by the time I finished, I'd finished reading the Old Testament, which if you're trying to read the Bible is the hard part. And I felt a sense of accomplishment. And I also felt like I'd finally understood something, which as a child was difficult for me to understand. Well, that that feeling was heightened. I, I studied abroad in Jerusalem in my 20s. And at one point in my Isaiah class, we were sitting in, and this is a rare opportunity I know, and it's quite a blessing in my life, but we were sitting in one of the classrooms which looks out over the old city of Jerusalem. And our teacher had previously told us the story of a 19th century explorer who had been digging around what's today called the Golden Gate of Jerusalem and fallen through a hole in the earth and seen a larger gate buried directly underneath it. Now, uh, I don't, I can't find any reference to this story and I don't know the origin of it, but um, it is believed by modern scholars that the, the gate Jesus used for the triumphal entry is directly under the Golden Gate that leads to what is today the Temple Mount or the uh, the Dome of the Rock. And so we knew where that occurred. And as he was talking about the various prophecies of Jesus's triumphal entry uh, in Isaiah and Zechariah and in Daniel, he stopped the lesson and he turned and the, and the setting sun was just hitting that gate and he pointed over to the Golden Gate and he said, and we know the place where this occurred. It's right there. And together with all of the other experiences I had in Jerusalem at that moment, the Old Testament became real to me. And the New Testament, obviously this event was from the New Testament, but the Old Testament had predicted that. And in Daniel specifically, he was made aware of the timing of the coming of the Messiah and of the exact circumstances that would surround Jesus's triumphal entry, the, the, the actual entrance of the Messiah in Jerusalem as its king. And uh, in that moment, I, I fell in love with the Old Testament. And that's another reason why I'm excited to do this podcast. I'm excited to start with the Old Testament. I'm glad that that's the way the church does it every four years, because uh, this is my favorite thing to teach. So for the next year, I'm going to really enjoy preparing and teaching these lessons on the Old Testament. Today's subject is the very first lesson in the Old Testament uh, Sunday School Manual, which is, interestingly enough, from the from the Pearl of Great Price, the first chapter of Moses. And though it is in the Pearl of Great Price, we can consider the first chapter of Moses to be part of the Old Testament from an LDS perspective, because as we know, the book of Moses was part of Joseph Smith's effort to translate, quote unquote, the Bible. And I say, quote unquote, because there is no text from which Joseph Smith retranslated what we know today as the Book of Moses or selections from the Book of Moses. He didn't 
find different meanings for words and put together the the book of Moses, he was inspired. This this revelation came to him from whole cloth. Uh, nevertheless, it seems to fit what we believe about Moses, and it and it fits what we know from our LDS perspective a prophet and a prophet would do, and the nature of God being unchanging. It shows us that God has been the same. Today in the Christian world, the common belief is that the Holy Ghost began to strive with man after the day of Pentecosts. And there are a number of other false beliefs that have pervaded society precisely because the book of Moses was lost, or the the content of that book was lost. And though Moses gave this inspired preface to what he would write, which we know today as the book of Genesis, he, he talked about how he had revealed to him the creation of the world before he began talking about the creation of the world. And he gave a little bit of his own story before he started giving the story that God had revealed to him. Uh, that has all been lost. And so it's been a little bit hard for mainstream Christianity, mainstream Judaism to understand the context in which the five books of Moses exist. Naturally so. It would be have been impossible for them to understand otherwise. And uh, as I was uh, thinking about what evidence we have, or not evidence, but what indications we have that the book of Moses uh, has had a profound impact over the centuries, we don't, we don't have any what you might call real historical evidence, but we have some indications. Um, and the way you find evidence of a book that you don't have anymore, and this has been done by many scholars over the centuries, the way you find evidence of those kinds of books is you find mentions of them elsewhere. And we have a, a very prominent example in the Book of Mormon of the prophets Zenic and Zenus. And we know that lost books, so-called, are, are referred to and known by their mentions in other books. Um, and what mentions do we have of, of the Book of Moses? We don't have any mentions of them directly in the Bible, in the in the Older New Testament as we know them. But did did Jesus and his apostles have access to the book of Moses? We know they would have been learned men, uh, though the apostles were humble men and didn't have, they weren't rabbis, any of them, but they, they were observant Jews and would have been learned in the learning of the Jews. Um, the first thing that comes to my mind is the first chapter of John. John says, without him was not anything made that was made without the word. And he calls Christ the word. And in the, in the first chapter of Moses, when God is talking to Moses, he says, uh, worlds without number have I created. And in verse 32, he says, and by the power, by the word of my power, have I created them, which is mine only begotten. So this is the first indication we have that Jesus Christ is called the word. And that's an idea we see in John, but it finds greater expression here in the book of Moses. The idea that Christ was essential to all of the creations of God. And as touches the Holy Ghost, in Second Peter we read, Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Uh, that's in Second Peter one twenty one. He talks about how the Holy Ghost has been around forever. All of the prophecies, all of the scriptures that we have were given rise to by the Holy Ghost. And that idea is generally not believed. The idea that the gift of the Holy Ghost pre-existed Christ's mortal ministry. But 
that's plainly expressed in the in the book of Moses chapter 1. So all of these wonderful things that we learn from the book of Moses uh, give context to and enhance our understanding of the Old Testament. Uh, what else do we learn from Moses chapter 1? So many wonderful things. One is the purpose of God, and this is the overriding message of Moses chapter 1. For behold, my work and my glory is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Um, in other words, God is about his work, which is us. He's always working on making us better people. He's consistently and constantly involved in the salvation of the human race. Uh, there have been so many people who believed over the course of human history that God, if God does exist, he created the world, set it in motion and walked away, or that he's not involved in the details of our lives. There are a lot of people who don't believe in an interventionist God, which means God created the world. He cares about you. He's watching you, but he doesn't actually put his hand into the way the world operates and change things. And if you want to have faith in God, you have to believe that he will intervene. Otherwise, what's the point in praying? I guess you could pray for gratitude, and that's important. Uh, you could pray for strength, but if God is going to give you strength, if he's going to do anything to you at all, he's intervening. And if he can intervene on that level, why can't he make greater changes? Why can't he help you find something that you've lost? Why can't he soften your heart? Why can't he make a plant grow faster? Why can't he affect all of those millions of circumstances? And uh, along those lines, there's an interesting, I mean, probably for me, the most interesting verse in the entire chapter, which is verse six, in which Moses learns, number one, he is in the similitude of Christ and Christ, the only begotten, is the Savior. And finally, that all things are present to God. And that carries with it a whole host of, of revelations. Uh, when we try to understand the mind of God, I mean, the scriptures tell us that God is above our understanding, and we know that. And this gives us, for the first time, gives us a, an indication as to why. If God lives outside of time, then we can understand how it is that he can know everything. And we know that God must have a different kind of mind. It must be on several quantum leaps above our mind. And my personal idea is that one of those ways in which it's different is that he can concentrate on more than one thing at a time, whereas we are limited in that way. We can only truly focus on one thing at a time. But if God lives outside of time, he's able to think about you and me. Jesus said, consider the lilies of the field and the sparrows, not even one sparrow will fall if God doesn't take note of it. And the lilies will be clad in greater glory than Solomon. And so God cares about every, not just every lily and sparrow and person, but he also cares about every particle. He has created everything. He, he cares about every atom in the universe, and he loves all of them. And of all his creations, humans are the most precious. And so that should tell you how much attention he's willing to pay to you. He's willing to give all his attention to you just as he can to me. And that seems like a foreign concept to us. But if all things are present to God, then he is constantly thinking about you. That is the kind of concept that allows people to have faith. When you know that God cares about you and is personally involved with you, if you are a parent, you're thinking about your children, you're thinking how much I love these children. But even the children you love the most, 
you're not giving all your attention to that child. And yet that is what God does with you. God raised us in a spiritual sense before we came to the earth. He is the father of our spirits. What does that mean? It means that he spent all of the quote-unquote time, all of the portions of eternity that he needed to spend in order to get us to a place where we could be ready to face the challenges that were here. Now, time exists precisely for the purpose of limiting us. It's because if we were in an eternity, a state of eternity, if we were living with God and dwelling in eternity outside of time, then all things in one way or another would be present for us as well. Maybe we wouldn't be able to focus on as many things as God could, or maybe we wouldn't have the memory he does or the understanding he does. But if we're outside of time, we're not limited enough to face challenges. And the point of this statement by God to Moses is, I don't face those challenges. I've overcome them and all things are present before me. I'm outside of time. Uh, So God can focus on an infinite number of things and he lives outside of time. And that means that everything he wants to think about, he has all the time he needs. He has all the attention he needs. It's difficult for even to discuss how God can do it because the only word we have is time. But let's just say he has all the attention he needs to give to every subject. Another concept that comes to us from the Pearl of Great Price, this one in the book of Abraham, is that there is nothing that God will take into his heart to do, save he shall do it. Now, how many of us are that organized and that capable of accomplishing our goals? Obviously none. The point is, God has all of the resources that he needs, all of the time he needs, all the attention he needs in order to accomplish any number of tasks. And that means to have an infinite numberless number of children and to care about each one of them. His love is infinite, truly, and it expands with each of his creations. When we read in the book, in the Doctrine of Covenants that the worth of souls is great in the sight of God, then that helps us to understand a little bit more about why that can be true in spite of the great number of his creations. Does, tr- does God truly care about you? And I hear this idea expressed a lot over the pulpit is God knows us by name. He doesn't just know us by name. If he knew us by name only, that would be a little silly. He knows us so well that he has spent more time with us than any of us will ever spend with each other, with any other person, even the person you love the most, even your spouse, even yourself. You think you know yourself well, and God knows you so much better than you know yourself and loves you and knows your faults. And in fact, he probably gave you those faults. As we read in Ether 12, 27, I give unto men weakness. He probably planned with you the course of your life to humble you and to help you to overcome those faults. The purpose of your life is to be limited by time and to work hard, not knowing the outcome. It's only not knowing the outcome. It's only by not being outside of time that you can actually make choices. And so God's limits are other than our limits. His limits are are self-imposed, which is, I will not interfere with man's agency. Other than that, he has no limits at all. And that's a limit he chose for himself. And all of the misunderstandings of religion and God in this world can be traced back to that one concept, that God cares more about agency than he does about anything else. And Satan cares less about agency than he does about anything else. Satan will do anything to limit our agency, and God will do anything to preserve it. In fact, he's already done everything to preserve it. That's the point of the plan of salvation is to preserve our agency. And part of that point is that we be limited by our perspective of time. 
Now, I mentioned Satan just now. This is another revelation from the book of Moses that would have been amazing for the world at large to have as part of the Bible over all these centuries, which is that Satan is a real being, and he truly does desire our destruction. He desires our misery, and he creates clever counterfeits. And here in the first chapter of the book of Moses, which was the first chapter of what would become the Bible, is Satan saying, I am the only begotten. And so the very first of his counterfeits was the idea that he is Christ. What kind of Christ would Satan have made? Well, Moses can tell the difference between Christ and Satan because he says to Satan, where is thy glory that I should worship thee? I beheld, I beheld God. He was just here. And I know the difference between him and you because you have no glory accompanying you and I can see it. That's an important thing for us to remember. If we want to be able to spot the counterfeits of Satan, we have to spend time with the real things of God, with the eternal things, with all of those blessings that God has given us to get us from one end of this mortal existence to the other. Things like the Holy Ghost, the scriptures, prayer, things that inspire our faith. And those things that give us a glimpse into the glory of God, they are the very reasons, they're the only reasons that we're able to spot and escape the snares of Satan and to recognize his counterfeits. So there are plenty of counterfeits of Satan. He has a counterfeit for almost all of God's wonderful things that he's created. Uh, love and lust. We have greed and generosity. A, a few minutes contemplation will show you that everything that you think is good, Satan has a copy of it. And those copies are marked by their tendency to give us our rewards up front. And think of somebody who buys everything with a credit card, but buys everything on debt. If you bought everything on debt and then never paid it back, you would eventually be a prisoner to your own consumption. And that is how Satan wants you to end up. And what God wants you to do is to earn your blessings first and then receive them. And that is exactly how the plan of salvation works. So anytime you are struggling with a choice, is this, or a recognition, is this the counterfeit of Satan or is this a blessing from God? Is this divine? One indication can be, do I get all of my rewards up front and then pay for them later? Am I going to be working on this forever? Am I going to feel good now and feel miserable tomorrow? If the answer is yes, you may well be in the middle of choosing between a counterfeit of Satan and what God wants you to do, which is hang in there and wait upon the Lord. And that's the whole point of being imprisoned, as it were, in time, is that we have to wait upon the Lord. And time after time, we, we have this concept in the scriptures without understanding the root of it here in the book of Moses, which is so amazing that we are in the similitude of a being for whom everything is present. And that means one day we will experience that same feeling of knowing everything at once. Uh, when Satan says to Moses, worship me, and Moses replies in verse 20, we read, this one God only will I worship which is the God of glory. Because Moses had seen God's glory, then he was able, the choice for him was a no-brainer. It took, it took nothing for him to say, I'm going to worship the God of glory. I can see the difference between you and him. Now, Moses had seen a vision in verse 8. He'd seen a vision of the entire world. 
And I realized as I was reading this again, that I have in my mind confused the vision of Moses with the vision that Nephi has of all of the creations in this world. And Nephi says explicitly, he saw unto the ends of the world, he saw the future. In this vision of Moses, we know that he sees to the ends of the world, but it's not clear to me whether that means in space or in time. Did he see all the ends thereof, meaning every corner of the globe, as they say, or did he see the ends in time? And I'm thinking, now looking at this, he might have only seen the world of his own time. But whichever way it might be, in verse only 10 verses later, in verse 18, he says, I will not cease to call upon God because I have other things to inquire of him. And isn't that interesting that Moses had had so much revealed to him? And then right away, he's thinking, I want to know more. The thirst for knowledge, as it's called in the Doctrine and Covenants, intelligence or light and truth. That hunger for light and truth was enough to help Moses resist the personal temptation of Satan. Now, nothing else would have been enough because Satan will not leave. Satan will not leave Moses alone. No matter how much he says, I want you to leave, Satan won't go. And it's not until Moses uses the name of the only begotten that Satan has to leave. Moses has no power to kick Satan out on his own. Uh, Satan, oh, here's another interesting thing. In verse 20, Moses began to fear exceedingly. And as he began to fear, he saw the bitterness of hell. What is the bitterness of hell? I've been thinking about this verse a lot. We experience fear in our lives, but Moses, so Moses would have had one of two experiences um, in this verse. One, one was that he had seen God's glory and felt to revel in it, felt to exalt himself. And I don't mean that in a prideful way. I mean, he, he was extremely overcome by this glory to the point where he lost consciousness for several hours. He lost his strength. And when he came out of the vision, the first thing he said was, for this cause, do I know that man is nothing? And President Uchtdorf referred to this dichotomy in his October 2011 general conference talk, you matter to him. This idea that number one, man is nothing. And number two, we're everything to God. It's such an interesting, interesting paradox because it's impossible for us to be obviously both everything and nothing. How is that resolvable? How can we reconcile the idea that we're everything and nothing? And there are two extremes that President Uchtdorf talked about, and these are the two, same two extremes that Satan seeks to exploit, which is on the one hand, you're nothing, you're worthless. Nothing you do is worthwhile. It's not even worth trying to resist temptation or make anything of your life or even try. And in the book of Moroni, Moroni says, you are, if, if you're feeling this way, you're a victim of despair and despair cometh because of iniquity. And that has always, well, I should say it initially confused me. And it's always a difficult concept to think about because when you're in despair, you're thinking, hey, this isn't my fault. Things have happened to me that are awful, or I just find myself in a bad place. And I really wish that life were different. I'm so sad. And then we read, and it's not a very comforting thought. Oh, you're in despair, and despair cometh because of iniquity. In other words, everything you're suffering when you're in despair, you think this way. Everything you're suffering is your own fault. That's not what that verse means, by the way. But that's what Satan wants you to think it means, which is that everything you're suffering is your own fault. You're not worthwhile. You're nothing. And so despair is the one side, the worthlessness, this self-deprecation to the point of nothingness. 
And that's not what Moses understood from his vision. That's not what he meant when he said, for this cause do I know that man is nothing. But on the other hand, you're everything to yourself. If life were a movie, you'd be the star of it all the time because you only have one consciousness to compare with your own. You're experiencing life from behind one set of eyes. So therefore, you think you're the most important thing there is. And especially if you're a child, you're younger, that's just a natural man way of seeing the world. And it's not until you grow up, you mature. That is the very process of maturity is to realize that other people are as valuable as you are. But that very tendency is the other end of the extreme. The other extreme that Satan seeks to exploit within us is, I'm not nothing, I'm everything. And what Moses saw was, man is nothing. And the, the solution to this dilemma is, what Moses meant by this was, man is nothing in his current state. For God, everything is present. And that means, that actually can also be say, said about men, but in a different way. For men, everything is present, meaning we are only limited to what we see now in the present. But for God, there is nothing outside of his present. So when we say it about man, when we look at man today, that man is not worth preserving. That man is not the kind of man that makes God feel the way he feels about us. It's our potential. So God in his current state is nothing, is what Moses saw. That is the way I would phrase it. And God sees us in our eternal state. For him, that is the present. And for him, that is what has great worth. Are we willing to pay the price for that? Are we willing to make the choices where we don't get to experience the pride of feeling like we're the most valuable person in the universe today. But if we wait upon the Lord, then we get to become someone who's actually of value to God and not an unprofitable servant. That prospect boggles my mind because what King Benjamin expressed when he called us unprofitable servants is that as soon as we do anything worthy of God's blessing, then we receive the blessing. And the only way we were able to do that worthy thing was through the blessings of God in the first place. Therefore, he's already paid us and he gave us the means to earn the payment. So we're unprofitable. How can we grow beyond that? God sees that potential in us and we don't understand how that might happen. Uh, but Satan wants us to think either we are never going to be unprofitable or never going to be profitable servants to God or that we don't need to be. Those are the two extremes that man is not nothing but everything, or that you personally are nothing. And if you can navigate between those two extremes, as God taught Moses to do here, he didn't want Moses to be prideful. That is why he showed him that man was everything. Moses had a lot of reasons for pride. Number one, he'd grown up in a royal household. And number two, here he is in the desert. He thinks that he's exiled, and all of a sudden he's called as a prophet of God. He's having a vision of the Almighty. He sees the glory, and he knows about everything in the earth. So a ton of reason for pride there. And yet his one remembrance, his, his first utterance as he comes out of this vision is, for this cause I know that man is nothing. So God make sure, made sure to keep Moses humble and to show him his weakness. And that might be one of the reasons why Moses didn't feel strong in speech. So Moses was kept, was guided by God between these two extremes. And we need to make sure that we're keeping ourselves between those two extremes. And so that's why despair comes because of iniquity. If we pay heed to the words of Satan that we're worthless, that's not God. What that's not what God wants us to feel, and it's not what He believes. And if He makes us feel like everyone else is worthless, 
then that's also not the truth. We need to remember that we have worth, but we have worth because of what God will make of us. And sometimes that feels daunting. And so then we give in to despair anyway. But we just need to remember, we actually don't have to be the one to make the difference. God is the one that makes that difference. It's the grace of God that picks us up. So even as an unprofitable servant, we can please God. And that's pretty, pretty astounding principle to get right here at the beginning, right here in one chapter. And that feeling that we are nothing, that is one example of the bitterness of hell. Moses looks into the bitterness of hell, and it's such an interesting phrase to use that he saw the bitterness of hell as soon as he starts to fear exceedingly. That uh, is the kind of language that sticks with you, that you remember, that keeps this message fresh in your mind, that those fears are the bitterness of hell. It's possible to experience the bitterness of hell here on the earth as soon as we despair, as soon as we forget that God is with us, that his strength can make us more than we appear to be today. And we're so limited in our viewpoint that we think what we are today, or what we're capable of, and not even today, but this very moment, all of the weaknesses, let's say that you just had a fight with someone or you did something stupid and you're feeling particularly vulnerable and you think who I am right here at this moment, this is the only thing that matters. And that lack of perspective is where, what Satan exploits to pounce and he will say he will he will increase that and try to make it resonate with you and try to make you feel like that's the only thing that you are and he augments and amplifies your fears until you feel like that's it i'm never going to change i can't see anything that's coming let's think about a little baby why does a little baby cry why does a little baby cry so loud all they are is a little bit hungry. I mean, as soon as you put a bottle in their mouth or as soon as you change the diaper, you rectify whatever is wrong you change, and you, you, know, you put them down to sleep, they're fine. So there was no, we can see from our perspective, there was no real reason to freak out like the little baby is. But the baby, when you, when you think about this, you understand why. The baby has no concept of time. It doesn't know that in a few minutes it's going to be okay. All the baby has is right now. And because right now is bad, everything is bad. It's not until we experience this feeling of, oh, everything's bad now, and everything's okay in a few minutes. Everything's bad again, everything's okay again. We have to experience that many times before we start to realize that's the way the world works, and things are going to get better. So then as we grow up, we gain this concept of time, knowing that the way things are today are not the way that they always will be. Well, multiply that tendency times a million, times infinity, and then you will know what God feels about us. There's no reason for us to be so distressed when things appear to be at their worst. For God, that's us crying at the lack of a bottle. We don't have our diapers changed, and we think the world is ending. And I'm saying this as if it were a silly thing to be worried about, but of course, everyone has this tendency. And the more capable we get at handling it, the bigger the challenges that we receive. But still, to God, they are on the same scale as us seeing a baby and wondering what the big deal is and thinking, this baby, if it only knew that I'm right here with the bottle, I'm right here with all the love and attention that it needs, it would stop crying. It would know. Uh, and crying is the way of letting us know because our, our comprehension as parents is imperfect. We don't know what's going to distress the baby before it happens. But then imagine God's ability. He knows exactly what we're suffering with. We don't need to cry. And 
He wants us to pray to him. He wants us to ask for help in our hour of need, obviously. He's, he's told us that many times. But I wonder sometimes if that prayer isn't more for us than it is for him. It's more for us to recognize that when those blessings do come, that we can't deny where they came from more than him saying, okay, they prayed for it. Now I'm going to give it to them. It's so that we can constantly be aware of our dependence on God. And that's this very concept that we are not nothing. We are not everything. We are, we have great worth when we depend upon God. If we are willing, and and Moses would learn this later in this, in a spot very close to the one where he receives this first revelation. He would learn it with the Israelites for 40 years, depending upon manna. They had everything they needed, but they couldn't do any of it themselves. What an interesting concept. And so they weren't nothing. They were worth sustaining by the power, the sheer power of God, by the very dew coalescing into a bread-like substance every morning for 40 years. They were worth all of that. And yet without that, they would have died. That is a a physical manifestation of this idea. And what evidence do we have that we're worth something? I think the first scripture I'd go to uh, along those lines is Alma chapter 26, verse 12. When Ammon says, I know I am nothing. As to my strength, I'm weak, but I won't boast of myself. I'm going to boast of my God for in his strength, I can do all things. Behold, many mighty miracles have we wrought in this land. So, Ammon is exactly right. I am weak in my strength. The strength that I think I have comes from God. And as soon as I forget that, it's withdrawn. And that's what we feel when we feel despair. We feel the withdrawing of the power that we used to have. We don't have the confidence. We may not have the intelligence. We we may not be able to figure things out as we once did, or all the resources that we had have been pulled away. Sometimes, not always, but Many times, that is the indication that we have forgotten God and he's withdrawn his favor. He's withdrawn his mighty hand from our lives. And we real, we're given the opportunity in that moment to realize how much we need it. Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth. And he also said, the meek will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So, and, and by meek, he didn't, I mean, we see in Jesus's own life that we know he was meek. He, he was the paragon of all the virtues that he espouses. And yet you don't have an earthly, by earthly standards, if you look at his life, he wasn't meek with everyone. He was not meek when he was talking about concepts. He was meek when he was talking with people. He was so kind to everyone. But when someone had an idea that needed opposing, he called it for what it was. He called it a lie. He called it hypocrisy. And so, yes, we need to be meek. And when we are meek, especially before God, and that's where the Savior was always meek, he said, I can, the Son can do nothing without the Father. He can only do the things that he's seen the Father do, and he receives all of his guidance and authority from the Father. He was always meek towards God, and that's how we need to be. In the scriptures we also read in the book of Isaiah, we read, how beautiful on the feet, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of them that are publishing peace. And we also read that in the book of, my, of uh, Mosiah. It was one of the verses important enough to be quoted in the Book of Mormon. So the, there are a lot of reasons to study that scripture, and we'll talk more about it when we do the Book of Isaiah. But uh, when we are about God's work, when we are helping him to accomplish his work, which he's already told us what it is, 
It's to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. If we are about that work, then our feet, the humblest part of our body, the dirtiest part, and in Jewish culture, especially dirty, they had they washed their feet constantly when they come in because you don't want to have dirty feet in someone's house. How beautiful are your feet on the mountains? So the mountains are God's creations are huge, they're majestic, but your very feet will be beautiful. The mountains will be better for your feet having touched there if you are simply about God's work. So there is a huge difference in what we think we can accomplish and what we and what we actually can. When we're at when we're in despair, we think we can do nothing. And when we are full of the glory of God, when we are as Moses was, fresh from seeing that glory and experiencing it, then we have all the confidence we need and what we can do when we're under the influence of our own confidence and our own pride, and it'll be a lot less. And we have evidence in the world today of people who are accomplishing a lot without God's help. Uh, Under our own pride, we can do things that are difficult. We can accomplish complex tasks and If that weren't true, then Satan would have no traction with which to attack us. And there would be no real draw towards his method of doing things. Uh, But there are a lot of powerful people in this world, and it won't take uh, most of you too long to know who I'm talking about in particular. But there are a lot of powerful people in this world who believe in themselves more than they believe in God. And uh, that's just a trick of Satan. Sooner or later, God's hand will be removed from them, and and hopefully that will be an opportunity for them to repent of that pride. What other proof do we have? President Uchtdorf spoke of us having a spark of eternal fire burning within our breast. So we have this spark of divinity. We are in the similitude of the only begotten. Um, And I recommend you go on to LDS.org and listen to that talk, You Matter to Him from October 2011 by President Nukdorf. Uh, I don't think there could be any more appropriate lesson to take from this chapter than man is nothing and man is everything to God. And of course, men and women, we are nothing and we are everything to God. So take that message from the chapter. Remember that when you feel like you're nothing, that Satan has shown you the bitterness of hell. And you cannot drive Satan out on your own, as Moses learned. You have to, and, and Moses received strength. When, when Moses cast out Satan, he tried and tried and tried with his own strength to cast out Satan. And then he received strength. The Holy Ghost again came upon him and moved him to use the power of Jesus to command Satan to depart. And then Satan did. Now, the actual being Satan may not be the one tempting you in the moment that you feel this way. So your method of dealing with it may not be the exact same. You can't just say, I command this to be different in the name of the only begotten. But that may be the case, but you have to use the power of the only begotten, which in your case is going to be different every time. You're going to have to find a way to feel the glory of God, and you're going to have to do it through the influence of Jesus. You're going to have to bring Jesus into your life. And when you do, even if you've seen the bitterness of hell, even if you've felt this fear that Satan is going to drag you down, he's going to make you feel worthless. Even if you felt that, you can use the power of Jesus to cast that influence out of your life. And when you do, then you will feel powerful again, and you will feel calm, you will feel... And and here's... Earlier I said that Satan had a counterfeit for almost every 
experience, every mortal experience that we enjoy. Every good thing of God has its counterfeit. Here's the one he doesn't have a counterfeit for, and that's peace. When you can bring the peace of Christ into your life, then Satan cannot counterfeit that, and he cannot fake it. That was one of the blessings that Jesus gave to his apostles. He said, my peace I leave with you, not as the world giveth, giveth, give I unto you. So as we close today's lesson, I would just wish that upon you. I would say, use this chapter, this wonderful, amazing, revelatory chapter, the first chapter of Moses, to understand the two extremes that Satan would drive you to, and to seek to find the middle road, which is the peace of Christ. And one final word about President Monson from this chapter, I would say, is that when we read the history or the purpose, the driving motivation of God, which is to bring to pass our immortality and eternal life, we read that and when we see that our feet would be beautiful upon the mountains if we are about that work, I don't know if there's any higher praise that you could say about anyone than that they spent their days performing that work, doing the work of God. And I can't think of any better way to describe President Monson than to say that he spent his days bringing to pass the immortality and eternal life of man more than anybody I can think of. What a wonderful servant of Christ. And of course, he'll be sorely missed. But I have no doubt that as soon as he passed beyond the veil, he found himself in the loving arms of our Savior, who would have had very wonderful things to say to him. And so I'm grateful for his ministry in his life. And I leave all of these messages with you in the hopes that you will take something from them and better your lives. Please send us your questions and comments via email. I'll leave this with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt, with bumper music in this episode by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.